Let's uh, let's thank let's thank God for the evening and the Word, dear Lord God. We're grateful for time in Your Word. We're grateful for the difficulty of these passages. We're grateful for the the interest that that brings up in us. Keep us calm in Your Son's name. Amen. Well, uh, we are in the second of four. I filled up as much of the 11 by 17 as I did last week. It will happen again two more times. Um, I divided arbitrarily the book into introduction, preparation, third woe, and the victory at the end. And uh, tonight we're going between, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, the four horsemen of the apocalypse and um, the end of the second woe, if that means anything to you. It covers the, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven thunders, very briefly, um, and threes of things. So, um, uh, I'm going to try to give you a sense of where I think John is placing the vision tonight, because I think we have in the text reason to start placing the vision. We knew last week when it says at the very beginning of the book, the time is short, it was not for a long time. The time is imminent. It's all those kind of phrasings at the beginning and end of the book that says it's going to happen. It's going to happen soon. But you don't know how, how soon in reference to John writing the book. He's writing it somewhere between the 60s and the 90s uh, AD. So it's after the ministry of Christ and after most of the ministry of the apostles. John's an old man by so, all, most descriptions. And uh, um, those things are um, uh, have to be kept in mind because whatever he says, you you got to be ready to do with it what's necessary to do with it. We have issues of remember last week we talked about the gradient of symbolic accuracy. You have uh, some symbols are very close to the actual thing they represent. Some things are very far removed from the actual thing they represent. Some things don't really represent something as much as they're maybe a memnonic device. The, some of the thoughts are that the, the seven churches with all the sevens in the book um, are uh, for that holding people into a, uh, a, a kind of box. Um, but um, with those things in mind, we don't want to something familiar symbols like the four horsemen of the apocalypse one of the things that uh, uh, Peter and I were remembering if you've seen Raising Arizona uh, and the biker of the apocalypse uh, in that movie and if you've read Good Omens or saw the show there's the bikers of the apocalypse they are the actual four horsemen um, everyone gets kind of jazzed about the the horsemen of the apocalypse. I don't know why. Maybe horses are involved and girls like horses. You like horses, Libby. Um, but I want to, basically I want to warn you about something because something happens in this section of chapters that is important for the believer to deal with. If the believer um, doesn't remember this certain things are going to excite you and the things that it's about will not. Okay, right at the top of the left hand, right hand side, Colossians 
2, verse 18 and 19. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So I, want to just, I don't want to be a spoiler about this, but the book has been around for a while, so hopefully you've been through it. But there is a, um, there is a direction, this set of chapters, we're going from 6 through 11, uh, this set of chapters is pointing to the coming, um, the manifestation of Christ. That's where it's going. You'll see it when we get to the end. You'll see how the vision shifts and what it's about. Now, however you're dealing with that, another matter. You're, you're free citizens. You can do what you want. But it's not. Uh, we're open with the four horsemen in chapter 6. And if you're basing your faith on visions, you're going to be all about the plagues, the trumpets, the thunders, the, the, the cherubim, the chimeras, the whomever else is showing up, excited by the visionary elements and not realizing that all of those are just players on the stage of this vision. And one of the things I want to uh, suggest to you, I did mention last week, when you're in a vision situation like this, one of the neat things that John seems to do is he actualizes the vision. Um, like he says, this number, I heard their number given. And he gives the number of troops or the number of this, the 144,000. He mentions that he heard the number. Or in one place tonight, um, of chapter 8, second column, first verse, chapter 8, down by the bottom. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven, and this is the interesting part, for about half an hour. For about half an hour. About, maybe 35 minutes, I'm not sure. This is not, we're not in dreamland here. We're not in some sort of who knows what's going on. He's, he's having an actual presentation that he gives you anchors of reality or anchors of actuality, let's just say that, uh, to hang this on. Whether or not the things are real in this reality and either symbols or play actors that symbolize, that's something you can work out. But he does, he does um, um, you might put us on notice that these are things that are going on in front of him, and he's moving around. Last week he, he heard a voice behind him, and then, it says, and then he turned around and looked. And those sorts of elements are what you do in life. So, um, the... Uh, um, uh, the first part of this, first part of the vision, is um, Jacob. There are notes right here on the boulder. The first part of the vision is, if you remember from last week, it was bemoaned who could open the scroll. The lamb came forward, the one with the wound, that um, the mortal wound, and so the lamb is opening the seals on the scroll. If you want to think of this, like I call this the preparation, it's like characters trotting out on the stage for you to recognize them and understand that they're waiting for something. They're waiting for the action. Alright? So it's like the seven seals are like, you know, gentlemen start your engines and the seven trumpets are 
like everybody take your places and then the seven thunders are let's get ready to rumble you know that's the uh, and 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 things really take off into the you might say the essential part of the vision so your 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 four horsemen now verse uh, one of chapter six and i saw the lamb open one of the seven seals i had heard of the four living creatures say was with a voice of thunder come and i saw and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, we could spend our time figuring out, okay, conquest, one of them's famine, one of them's death, one of them's inflation. You, know, you go, ah, what are we going to do with this? Well, you could, you could break those things down, but I think what you probably, since we can't tell you that these, are these horsemen real? Do these horsemen represent these forces in humanity that are constant but then are magnified at a particular time for the vision? Um, do they carry something more? What I want to suggest is I mentioned last week that Zechariah has a lot of the imagery that's in Revelation. And over on the right hand side, Zechariah 1 7, in the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shebat. In the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, the prophet. And Berechiah said, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding upon a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. And what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees, We have betrothed the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Well, you say, okay, red, red, sorrel, and white. What's sorrel? It's kind of chestnutty. Is that what sorrel is? So you've got two red horses, kind of a red horse, and a white horse. But the other reference in Zechariah, the next one down, I lifted my eyes and saw, behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled gray horses. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered me, These are going forth to the four winds of heaven. I want you to remember that. After presenting themselves before the lord of all the earth, the chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country, the white ones go toward the west country, the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the steeds came out, they were impatient to get off and patrol the earth. And he said, go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Whatever that means. And whatever patrolling the earth means. But whatever the case, Zechariah, out of which the lampstands come, out of which the scroll comes, out of which the horror of Babylon comes, out of which the horse, you know, the olive trees come. All of these things are coming out of Zechariah. I recommend you read the book. It's not long. You'll start to recognize elements. Now it's not telling you. that He's asking, what, what are these for? He says, therefore, they are God's agents sent out to patrol the earth. Now we seem to think of the four horsemen as a, a set of a dynamics, which they do have in their in their, uh, you know, uh, toolbox, a set of dynamics that needs to be read into the story somehow critically, and we, we don't have anything to do with that. But we know that this is a 
uh, you might say, a metaphysical uh, image that is constant. Zechariah is close to the end of the Old Testament, but, you know, 400 years between John and Zechariah, perhaps. Maybe five. So we're not looking at what they're doing, because what they're doing doesn't play. How they act in the situation, and whether they're acting through the rest of this portion of the vision, I don't know if you knew, but this is it for the horror horsemen. You know, they, they don't show up at the, the jumpy dynamic part. They're not part of whatever you would consider to be the climax of the book. And what's important is here is you got four horsemen sent out into the earth. And remember, I said, this is like preparation. You see the next uh, seal open, verse 9. He opened the fifth seal, because you have the first four are the four horsemen. And I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before thou wilt judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? So you got the fifth seal is a bunch of dead people who were killed for being followers of God under the altar saying, we want vengeance. We want to be avenged for what we've gone through. And he says, he tells them to wait until the rest of the people who are going to be martyred join them. It's like, okay, there's going to be a lot more, a lot more of you guys, so hang on. But it's a place of, you might say, who's on the stage? Who is um, uh, prompting? This is sort of the first moment. Um, this is the beginning of the tale that just finishes out the book. This is the prompt of the wrath of God. Remember, we were talking about people who conquer, people who who overcome, uh, the people that were being enjoined to endure persecution in the seven churches. This is where it hits the road where the image of the vision, what we're going to see happen, is begun in these matters. Okay, the scroll is being opened, the four horsemen are out, with all that they represent, everything from death to famine to war. And the, and the, and we don't often think of the four horsemen as positive characters. But a lot of the people in the book that are even evil and negative are positive characters. Because God is doing something that is not just introducing us to a great image in apocalyptic literature called the Four Horsemen uh, or, or complainy martyrs. The sixth seal, there's a great earthquake, and then this, under the sixth seal the sinners cry out for the mountains to fall on them. Everybody. And they say at the end, verse 16, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand before it? Those are directions. The, the Lord is saying, I'm sending out the four horsemen. I'm listening to you martyrs. You want vengeance, but hey, there needs to be more of you yet. Um, the sinners are wet in their pants because they know the wrath of God is coming. And then it says in verse, chapter 7, verse 1, what we, some areas where you have some freedom to choose about which way you're going to handle it. I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. That's why I told you to remember 
the four horsemen of Zechariah that are sent out to the four winds of heaven. Okay? Sent out to the four winds of heaven. Because you've got the same image in chapter 6 of the four horsemen, same color horses, and are they being sent out in the same way to deal with God's efforts in the world? If they are symbols of something, go with that. If they are literal agents uh, being seen doing that, so be it. Or if they are literal agents representing the doing of that in the play that is being shown to John. But is the four, are the four winds, essentially, there are four angels holding back four winds. Okay? Four angels holding back four winds. That image keeps coming up a little bit in this section. Then I saw another angel ascend from the rising of the sun, verse 2, with a seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God upon their foreheads. Now, this is one of the reasons this is preparation. Things are entering the scene. Things are making requests. The martyrs are making a request. The wicked are flipping out. The four horsemen are riding out. And other angels are holding back whether or not you think it's the four horsemen or something else that's in a number four. Um, and then he says, okay, you hang on there, buddy. We've got to seal the servants of God. Now, I don't know if you know. Anybody got a UPC symbol? that uh, the Antichrist is going to get you all tattooed with a UP symbol, uh, or something. Everybody talks about the mark of the beast. We'll get to the, uh, what's it called, hexacosio, hexaconta, hexaphobia, which is the fear of the number 666. Um, the, everybody talks about that, the number on the forehead, the number on the hand. And before you get to that in the book, God is marking his people, on their foreheads. And it says, till we have sealed the servants of our God upon their foreheads. So whatever you do with the book, be ready, if you're a literalist, be ready to have an angel show up and stamp you on the forehead with, the, with, with God's identifier, just as much as the Antichrist, if you believe in an Antichrist uh, of that kind, is uh, trying to stamp the 666 on your forehead. Both is happening. Both are happening. The... Uh, um, the, the image also occurs in Ezekiel of uh, putting, uh, writing uh, on the forehead uh, of everybody who's the person of God uh, in Ezekiel as well. This is, these are images out of the Old Testament. But in this case, this group, you have the martyrs going, hey, a vengeance. Uh, you have the wicked uh, calling for the mountain to fall on them. You have the 144,000, which is a convenient 12,000 of every tribe of Israel. 12,000 of every tribe, making 144,000, with the exception of the tribe of Dan. Dan's not on the list. Manasseh is. Ephraim is not. Joseph is instead of Ephraim. Why, I don't know. That's just the way the text is there. But the tribe of Dan isn't, isn't a part of it. Now, the 144,000 show up again in the uh, text in, uh, I think, next week. Chapter 14, I think it is. 
This is this is a real Bible. This is a pretend Bible with all my notes. And then there's your notes. 12, um, 14. Oh, it talks about the 144,000 with his name written, the his, his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And they are um, not defiled themselves with women. And uh, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. Uh, they're the first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they're spotless. So they show up again, um, and we'll get to that aspect of the story when they do. But again, you have character groups. Character groups. The next character group is verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no man could number. Last one he said, I got a number for you guys, uh, there's 144,000. This other group is innumerable from every nation, every, all tribes, peoples, and tongues, and they are also people who have been clothed in white robes and have um, um, uh, been promised that they, they've been made white in the blood of the Lamb. It's a suggestive that these people have suffered persecution. So you had the ones calling out for vengeance, you have the Jews, you have the Gentiles, uh, innumerable all of which are, going, are being promised something of uh, God's uh, salvation. Okay? Again, preparation. The stage is set uh, for what um, starts to open up. We'll get into how it opens up tonight, but um, uh, not to the crisis point. <clears throat> because we don't know at this point where we are in time. We know it's got to be sometime around the time of John. He's got to be referencing something around the time of John. And what aspect or what angle, what vantage point we take on that uh, is, needs, to be, needs to be biblically uh, positioned. So chapter 8 starts out with that verse I read earlier. When he opens the seventh seal, there is silence. I mean, the seal only has silence for half an hour. Given how noisy it had been in this image, there is all sorts of... Uh, the first person picks up a rock. Oh... Thank you. Didn't, didn't uh, imagine how my heart leapt. Um, there's just silence in cacophony. There's been these thunderous voices, this, this overwhelming, make you pass out level of, uh, you might say, glory, transcendent noise, and it goes quiet, in a, only in a space level of quiet where sound doesn't travel. It, and it just, that's, just, that's just a path. It's, uh, suddenly the half hour is all, everything gets reset, something else starts. Seven angels, verse 2, who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to mingle with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar before the throne. Uh, it was something that jumped out at, I don't know if you, seven angels, oh, there's seven archangels in there. Um, the standard ones, Bible ones are Michael and Gabriel, and then there's Raphael and Uriel, who are, and then there's Sakael and someone else. Are these from a Jewish group? Yeah, yeah, from Jewish, uh, from, uh, um, I think Tobit. 
I have something under my side notes from Tobit. Uh, well, that's helpful. Thank you. Um, wow. Well, yeah, that's one of the, the. Let's see. Where is it? Da, 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 da. Um, Enoch, the Book of the Watchers, lists them as Uriel, Raphael, Raguel, Michael, Sarakel, Gabriel, and Remiel. Those, those names will change depending what tradition you're in. Uh, but in Tobit, the one I have here on your, on your right-hand side, Tobit is one of the books of the Apocrypha, the Jewish Apocrypha, story of uh, a guy who loses his, his, his father loses his sight because some birds pooped in his eyes, which is really not the way an adventure should start. Uh, son goes off to uh, Padanaram, Mesopotamia, to try to get magic to heal his father, Raphael, the archangel, accompanies him unbeknown to him. And, uh, but this verse, I am Raphael, one of the seven holy angels, who present the prayers of the saints and enter into the presence of the glory of the Holy One. So it's almost, you might say, straight image for image, not word for word. Another angel could, who had the censer, which were the prayers of the saints, upon the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense rose with the prayers of the saints from the hand of the angel before God. So, I'm not saying this is Raphael, but the image is consistent with Jewish thought, anyway, about, I don't know if you, if you have sort of a, a magic view of prayer, that if, if you kind of think something halfway toward God, you know, he races down from heaven and snatches that idea out of your brain, and, and you, you consider yourself having prayed. Or do you believe that it has to be uttered verbally and he's got to hear it, or do you think it has to be uttered verbally and there's someone there who takes it to God? So Tobit suggests that yes. Revelation suggests yes. They have a, it, but it's all symbolic, so you don't know whether or not you're just supposed to take this on as a metaphor of your prayers as incense before God. Do what you want with it. Didn't want to pass it by. So he throws the censer on the earth, not just not with the prayers, but from the from the fire on the altar, and the seven angels who had the seven trumpets made ready to blow them. So now you have you had the seven seals, <coughs> placed a lot of the characters in place. The seven trumpets, on the other hand, step you into the action. But they, the first four don't do you any. Um, don't do you much good. You know, uh, they, they're just, something happens and a third of mankind dies. Something happens and a third of the fish die. Something happens, you know, it's like the first angel, a third of the trees burn up. Uh, second angel, um, a third of the living creatures in the sea died. A third of the ships were destroyed. Um, the third angel blew it and wormwood fell from heaven. That's a star named wormwood. And uh, a third of the waters became wormwood. The fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the moon, a third of the stars, a third of the sun, a third of their light was darkened. Are you picking up on something? A third of things? Now, it may be important, but the book doesn't tell us what's the important aspect of it. Unless you're a literalist, and you say, okay, I'm waiting for the day when a third of these things will pass. Okay? Come to pass. That's why it's important for us to get to a place where the book drives a nail into the timing so you can go, oh, now I know it's got to be a symbol. 
how close of a symbol it is or what's the importance of the symbol. These symbols are all uh, part of a play being set out for John. Were there really the spirits of martyrs under the altar in heaven crying out for vengeance? There may have been. There, may, there certainly was in the vision John saw. And there certainly was these uh, trumpets causing this kind of annihilation. But the thing is, I want you to follow at least what the text does do. It says a third of everything, a third of everything, a third of everything, a third of everything. The fifth trumpet, I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, which may be wormwood. Because it says, back with wormwood in verse 11, um, verse 10, I saw a great star fell from heaven. His name was Wormwood. You get to five. I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given a key. So maybe Wormwood uh, is the character. You'll find those kind of symbolic um, agreements with what had happened, just happened to the vision, or things that tie together in number or in um, kind. And he opens the shaft of the bottomless pit. That's the abyss. In case you are unfamiliar, that is bis. Abyss is none of that. Okay? Ground, no ground. And so the abyss is bottomless, hole in the ground. Okay? There's no ground to it. So the bottomless pit, wherever that is, gets opened up. I think it's in Italy. Because I think, didn't Aeneas go there? Oh, he at least went to hell. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. And they were told not to harm the grass or the earth or any green growth of any tree. Now listen to this. But only those of mankind who have not the seal of God upon their foreheads. Remember, God was going around sealing his people. And he said, hold it, the stuff that I'm about to start, the wrath bit, that's going to kill a whole bunch of people. Don't hurt them. And I skipped over something too. Right at the end of the fourth angel, an eagle crying with a loud voice flew in mid-heaven. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. At the blast of the other trumpets with the three angels are about to blow. In case you're missing, you might say the almost poetic structure, you had four trumpets that kill a third of things. You have an eagle cry out three woes and then tells you, warns you about the remaining three trumpets. Okay? And the remaining three trumpets are the last three woes. Okay? First, second, third woe. The third woe is where the book's going. Okay? The first two woes are just prep. But the third woe is where we're going. But th that may help, you at least might be comfortable with the threes. Say, I don't know what they mean past this, but it seems like it's holding the, the passage of the trumpets together in threes. Now, the star falling from heaven opens up the bottomless pit. Out comes this locust army. Not to punish. It's not the, it's not the Antichrist. It's not the, the bad people doing bad things to the good people. It's bad people doing, or, or bad things doing bad, more bad things to the bad people. Because this is the beginning of the wrath of God. Remember the group of the sinners back there calling for the mountains to fall on them because the day of his wrath had come? It's, it's all up. Everybody out of the pool. Um, the pain of their sting of these, they like, have tails like scorpions and 
they uh, have long hair, hair like women's hair, their teeth like lion's teeth. A pretty good image. I think Durier makes some nice engravings of uh, woodcuts of, of these images out of Revelation. He's a little direct in sort of a Northern European soulless way. Uh, I think when he talks about his legs were like pillars of bronze. He actually draws pillars with a base and a capital. You know, just, okay, Durier, you're drunk, go home. Um, so it's not important for me, it's not given we have an hour and four weeks to do this in. It's not important for me to try to find something to apply that long hair to. I, I certainly am not going to claim that these are Russian helicopters, okay? I'm not going to do that. Because something's going to happen here in a moment that denies us that pleasure. But the king over them, this is an element, the king over them, verse 11, is the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. Both mean destroyer. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Now, I want to make sure I didn't forget anything. Looking at the notes. I missed Tobit a minute ago. Um, but this is where the judgment of the wicked actually starts to happen. Remember, the announcing of it is with the martyrs crying out for vengeance. The wicked are being actually, not being scared, but being, um, uh, but being hurt. And the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, or as Glenn said, release the kraken, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Hold it, hold it. Something is reminding me of something. Right? Because we had four horsemen set on the stage. You had four angels holding back the four winds who were going to do destruction and said, don't let them go until everybody is sealed. And then... At this point, the four, four angels held at the Euphrates um, are released. Now, the Euphrates, for us, it might play, uh, I don't know what kind of education you have or, or history, um, but in the first century, the Euphrates was the, a line of demarcation between Parthia and, and Rome. And an awful lot of major events, major conflicts, major power uh, politics going on in that region. Uh, so they're not unfamiliar with the Euphrates. Uh, if depends on so it depends on where you end up putting this event. The angels at the Euphrates, four of them, released, who'd been held ready for the hour, the day, the month, the year to kill a third of mankind. It seems like the vision of wrath up to this point is taking, I'm not saying insisting, the four angels being held back until the ceiling happens, the third are things are beginning to uh, first with Apollyon and then with the four angels or four horsemen released at the Euphrates um, come and do their damage. What's interesting, just as a side, the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. This is where the picture comes from. What they're riding 
in the second woe is a standard mythical beast that we have. That's an Etruscan sculpture from 400 BC. Okay? It describes it in the scriptures as the heads of lion's head and fire and smoke and sulfur issued from their mouths. The power of the horses, verse 19, is in their mouths and their tails. Their tails are like serpents with heads. By means of them they wound. Look at the sculpture. He has a snake tail with a head on the end of it. So what's that thing in the middle? I think that's a misunderstanding. Now, bear with me here. Because this happens a lot. You look at the chimera. This is called a chimera. Bellerophon slays it. In uh, I have the quote from the Iliad here. When he received the wicked letter, he first commanded Bellerophon to kill that savage monster, the chimera, who was not a human being but a goddess, for she had the head of a lion and the tail of a serpent, while her body was that of a goat, and she breathed forth flames of fire. But Bellerophon slew her, and he was guided by signs from heaven. He was writing Pegasus at the time. So if you like those kinds of stories, it's a, kind of got a biblical connection. But chimera were decorative uh, they played a role in, obviously, back to whenever the Iliad's first written down, 700s maybe, uh, BC. And you got a sculpture of one. You have a, the Hittites have a, a bas relief of one uh, ver with an extra human head in it. But I really think that you say, well, how did they know what it looked like? It's in the Bible. Well, I think someone had witnessed the chimera and communicated it like uh, the Iliad does head of a lion, tail of a snake with a head on the end, body of a goat, and they put a goat's head in the middle because they said it was goat in the middle. Rather than giving it a goat body with a lion head and a snake tail, I think, I just think it's a misunderstanding. Most of them do have a goat's head sticking out the side, okay? I don't think it's good graphics, but, I mean, there's some weird things going on in this vision, so I can't really, I can't really say he can't have that. Um, what happens here is these four angels uh, are bringing about another punishment on the wicked. He says in verse 20 there of chapter 9, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot either see or hear or walk. Nor do they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their immorality or their thefts. God is punishing in woe number one, woe number two. This is the beginning of the wrath of God. We just need to know where to put it. Right? Because some of you might believe the book of Revelation is about the end of the world. God bless you. Jesus loves you. I, I'm sure in the movies it is about the end of the world. But if it isn't, we need, because we, we want to glorify God where it has been fulfilled, we want to hope in God where it has not. Okay? Hope in Him where it has not, glorify Him where it has. And if you start to see where it, where it begins to be uh, anchored, and this next chapter does that. And I saw another mighty angel. We're still in the sixth trumpet, okay? The sixth trumpet has not ended. It's a long one. And uh, in the middle of that, this angel shows up and, and he calls out and says, the seven thunders sounded. You know, we've got seven seals, seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, now seven thunders. What's interesting about the seven thunders is another example of 
the actuality of this? Because John says, And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Uh, why am I having this vision? I mean, I mean, is extra icing of visionary stuff that you're not going to get told about just that it happened? Um, we already didn't understand what any of the other things were. So, uh, I mean, what's going to happen to us? We're going to know too much? We don't know why, it's, why that's there, other than that's what happened to him. And he has this actual relationship with it and tries to write it down, but is deterred from it. But the angel says, swore, verse 6, who swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what lives in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. Listen to this, it's bolded for your benefit, that there should be no more delay. But in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, we're in the, 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 the time of the sixth trumpet call, of the sixth angel, he says, when the seventh angel has a trumpet call, the mystery of God, as he announced to his servants the prophets, should be fulfilled. And you should be going, oh, I have read other parts of the Bible, and I have understood it. Remember the other parts of the Bible? You do remember, I trust, uh, the other parts of the Bible. Um, what uh, I think I have the, in my real note-taking. This is, uh, is that ominous? You get attacked by your flip chart. It's probably upset that I haven't used it yet. <laughs> now, it's, now, it's just, now it's just looking for pity. Don't pay any attention to it. I want to read you something out of Romans. Romans 16, right at the end of the book, last, last paragraph. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret for long ages, but is now disclosed through the prophetic writings, is made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul seems to think that the prophetic word declaring the mystery of God was revealed in Jesus Christ. At his coming, in his incarnation, in his atonement, this is the mystery of God. He also says in Ephesians, this is Ephesians 3, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that is, how the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Okay? Now, you're basically being told by the angel here, there's going to be no more delay. This wrath of God stuff has got to get going. Um, we're now going to get down when the seventh trumpet sounds that the mystery of God announced by the prophets would be fulfilled. The gospel is the mystery of God prophesied by the prophets fulfilled in the coming of Christ. So you're beginning to get that see, just the beginning, I'm not going to this is going to become in, uh, unassailable after another week, but uh, uh, 
this is giving us a guide saying maybe the third woe, because the sixth woe, uh, uh, the first two woes are the fifth and the sixth trumpets. The seventh woe, the seventh trumpet is the third woe. Got to keep my numbers straight. Now, you have all these images, and you could probably do quite a bit of beneficial homework looking for all the images like him eating the next paragraph is him eating the scroll that the a different scroll the angel gives him and it's it's bitter to his stomach and it's sweet in his mouth Ezekiel does the same um, thing eating a scroll from the angel and the same reaction it was sweet uh, to eat um, but it and it says at the end of the chapter there and I was told you must prophesy about many peoples and nations and tongues and kings then he does a few things. He measures the temple of God and the altar. Told not to measure certain things. These are images that come right out of the Old Testament. Like eating the scroll, measuring the temple is in Zechariah. Um, then while he's doing that, he announces the two witnesses. Okay. Now you have to remember you're in the sixth woe. The seventh woe is when the mystery of God prophesied by the prophets, fulfilled, happens. So whatever this is, if you're chronological, and I'm generally chronological about the vision, um, these are happening, if the third woe is the coming of the Christ, the third woe is already passed for John. At least part of it, the coming of the Christ. That was decades ago for him. Let alone the second woe and the first woe those were even further back in history. So, when we look at these two witnesses, the question is, do, do I, do I, who, how do I place them? What do I do with them? It's healthier, I think, to stay close to what the Bible allows you to do and, and, and leave it alone after that. If you can't know for certain textually, um, you, you could have a supposal, but always admit that it's a supposal. Because this image, the olive trees and the lampstands, comes right out of Zechariah. Um, and in it, he asks the angel, again, okay, what are these olive trees and what are these lampstands? And they're the anointed ones of God who stand before the Lord of the earth. And it's tied to, at the time of Zechariah, the governor from Persia, the Jewish governor, was named Zerubbabel. And the high priest was named Joshua. And both of those guys are lifted up in Zechariah as images of the branch that is coming in the Messiah. But you've got all sorts of opportunities. Or either it's Zerubbabel and Joshua, even in Revelation, because it's before, it's before John. Uh, it is something they represent, the priesthood and the government of the Jews. Is there some element of, of anointing that that's going to be carried on with? There's some other prophecies in the Old Testament, especially in Daniel, that you might want to check. But you don't want to say too much. You say, I know this is the same image. The olive shoots and the lampstands are doing similar things in the two visions, and I kind of want to know what category to put them in. Zerubbabel and Joshua are it, at least immediate fulfillment, and then some other thing perhaps what are the two witnesses that he's referring to here under the uh, second woe and uh, uh, the sixth trumpet? 
he does a few things that, that throw a spanner into future interpretations, my own included. He calls in verse 8, where they get killed, the, the beast from the bottomless pit kills them. Because remember, some of these monsters, some of these celestials, either as images or actuals, are malevolent, but they're being used in their malevolence to punish the wicked. But in this case, the beast of the bottomless pit, who was let go by, you know, probably Wormwood, um, comes back and kills these, these two witnesses in the city called Sodom and Egypt. Okay? It tells you that that's, those are names for, for Jerusalem, because we know it's Jerusalem where their Lord was crucified. Now, a few things that are thrown in there that are problematic for Evan. And this is why we all are interested in the book, because we always find these correctives uh, to things we might suggest. And we, what that means is we have to do more and more uh, spade work to get at the right thing. Um, if their Lord was crucified there, how is it pre-incarnation, pre-Christ for the next woe? If this is the sixth, the second woe, how is the Lord's crucifixion already seeming to be past tense? Unless it's identifying the city and their actual lordship in Christ. You could get at it some way, that way, I suppose. But you also have the possibility that there's another city in the book that is also Jerusalem, and this would be, hold it, why didn't he just say Sodom again? Why didn't he just say Egypt again? Because later on in the book, it seems that Jerusalem is Babylon, the, or the great whore of Babylon, and, and so there's some confusion there too. Why have multiple, and what would I say? Well, he already gave, it's called Sodom and Egypt, why not Babylon? You know, that's also a possibility. But you have to recognize when your suppositions have something that's riding in it that throws you a curveball. Always keep that. Keep that close so that you don't start building, you know, dream castles about your city with pearly gates and really start hoping for a 1,500-mile city in a cube coming down from heaven. Um, not that it wouldn't be cool. Probably improve Kansas quite a bit. But um, you got to be sure that you're right about it. So you want to keep all the things that are proving you uh, or throwing you uh, uh, into more work. Now, in this, you have, you have the olive trees, the two witnesses. Some people say Moses and Elijah because they appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration. Some people say actually the Christ and John, the Baptist. They're the anointed ones of God. That's what it says in Zechariah. Um, it's also various high priests during the time of the Maccabean revolt that Daniel prophesied are called the anointed one. And, and they were faithful to God at one point. So it could be all of the above, or, or any one of the above, excuse me. Um, but it also throws at you a bunch of um, three and a half year references. You get the same thing in Daniel, uh, 1,360 days, or 42 months, or uh, three and a half days, or 1,290 days, 1,260 days. Um, they're all about three and a half years. Um, why? 
Well, at least for the prophecies regarding the Maccabean revolt, the seven-year tribulation of the Jews was divided in half by the abomination of desolation um, and uh, where Antiochus IV Epiphanes sacrificed a pig to the, his god in the Holy of Holies. It was a bad thing and it featured in Jewish thinking quite aggressively and it was three and a half years before, three and a half years after until the Jews re-seized uh, the temple and made Hanukkah out of it. Um, now what's whatever's happening, whatever you do, the angel who warned you the seventh trumpet was going to be the inauguration of the mystery of God, the prophets foretold in its fulfillment, you've got to do something with the sixth uh, trumpet and the fifth trumpet and the second woe and the first woe. Where do you place that? If You might be the kind of person that will rearrange the time frame, but whatever the case, the third woe is then announced here. The second woe is past, verse 14, and the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, now think of this in regard to what the angel told him before, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Okay? In case you were living a little more clarity, he says not just the mystery prophesied fulfilled, but now Christ has seized the kingdom. And the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to thee, Lord God Almighty, who art and who wast, that thou hast taken thy great power and begun to reign. Is that a weird phrase? Begun to reign? I thought, you know, isn't God always sort of in charge? Well, yeah. But it's different than delegated authority to the princes, which in the New Testament, the, the chief metaphysical struggle, your battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. The promise that was coming is coming not just in Christ who came to earth as a man, suffered with us of our weaknesses, tempted like we were, died for our sins. There's also a transcendent metaphysical struggle going on where the powers that were are overturned. It comes out of Colossians 2, I think. Where's Colossians? That's Galatians. That's Ephesians. Colossians 2. Verse 15. He disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in him. Some translations say in the cross. In Ephesians, I think it's Ephesians. Uh, go back to Ephesians 3, where he's just, when he just told us about the mystery hidden for ages, that, that through the church, verse 10, the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. There is this effort on God's part. The whole scene is one of manifest disruption. Um, if you ever read in, in uh, Acts where at Pentecost, Peter says the prophet Joel was fulfilled. Young men shall dream dreams, old men shall see visions, etc., etc., 
and then the moon will be turned to blood and the sun will be darkened and he gives all these apocalyptic images this is what happened this was prophesied for now and he's not just being poetic because in the world of these things in the world of the princes war and upheaval were going on disruption taking the beast of the bottomless pit and using his efforts to do something to punish the wicked but then having to deal with him as the destroyer it says at the end of that uh, uh, that part of the song of the 24 elders rewarding thy servants the prophets and saints and those who fear thy name both small and great and for destroying the destroyers of the earth Jesus Christ came and seized the power Jesus Christ came and took all authority unto himself God no longer delegated it to the princes no, God no longer uh, had space for that. Man was going too bad, and his mystery that would actually do the work that the, the princes couldn't imagine doing, they had to be taught how effective it was, is you guys, the church. It is made in you the work of the Holy Spirit to bring about the righteousness of faith through the work of Jesus Christ, which couldn't be done by law, couldn't be done by government, couldn't be done by any other spiritual means. The, uh, uh, the, the passage I was thinking of to end with uh, was the one out of Acts there at the bottom, Acts 4, um, where they're talking about those who... Uh, it's in... Uh, after Peter and John were set free from their interrogation. Why did the Gentiles rage? This is out of Psalm 2. And the people imagine vain things. The kings of the earth set themselves in array. The rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, um, it's, a, um, it's a basic theme of Christ's coming that he is taking the rule unto himself. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And he gives it to his apostles. This is a real shift. This is an overturning of the established metaphysic before, like so many overturnings of the elder gods by younger gods. This is the true God, his son, seizing power over the um, uh, limited gods that had gone on before him. Um, I think that, just in terms of the warning, um, at the beginning. Lots of weirdness. Be comfortable with the weirdness being weirdness and not even knowing what it's talking about. Look for things in the Bible to see if it can start anchoring that weirdness down. See the commonality between Zechariah, Daniel, Ezekiel, all of those things. But don't build your, your life and faith and, and, and theology on it. The story was all about bringing about the Christ. How does the wrath of God get poured out? We find out later in the book, I think I didn't turn to this passage, um, but it's in uh, uh, chapter 18 um, of, of uh, Revelation, when he's uh, calling down the uh, calling down the punishment on Babylon. And uh, and that, let's see, yes. In chapter 18, 24, 
In her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and all who have been slain on earth. Uh, chapter 19, verse 2, he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. That is what has been called out for, from the martyrs under the altar crying out for vengeance, till saying, hang on guys, your number has to be filled up, to the, to the 144,000, to the unnumbered multitude. God is going to avenge himself on, in this case, on Jerusalem. This is what he is going to do. The story is about God's vengeance on Jerusalem. And that's why we're finding ourselves landing on the coming of the Christ, the first coming of the Christ, um, not the second coming of the Christ. Uh, we're landing ourselves on the mystery revealed. And what you do with the, uh, um, the two other, I, be I better share this briefly. Um, and I was going to draw it out on the chart, but it fell over. Um, so what do I do with the, the Apollyon and the four angels at the Euphrates? You know, what, what do they fit into? Um, in my own work, uh, as I look at what happened in the time of Christ and what happened before with the two witnesses and, and the like, is you have this continuity between Daniel and the book of Revelation. Um, and Daniel deals with the coming, not the past nature, the coming of Alexander the Great, the Greek in flux, in, uh, conquest all the way over to India. And then he dies, and his four generals at the Euphrates, he's, he, they ask who he's going, going to get the kingdom, and he said it goes to the strongest, and they decided, okay, and they decided to fight it out for the next 300 years. Uh, and those are the Seleucids, the Ptolemies, the Antigonids, and, and, and so forth, the Lysimachus. And uh, um, you had essentially four powers that came out of the fall of the one power. So you might have, with Apollyon, uh, the Greek name for destroyer, he's prophesied in Daniel as coming and defeating the Persians. And then the kingdoms after him, the Diadochi, are prophesied as coming and filling most of the prophecies of Daniel as an important element and that's when the abomination of desolation happens, that's when um, Hanukkah shows up and, and there are good contenders for the two witnesses. But, those are a possibility and then the Romans came in, settled everybody's hash and then the Christ comes. So, well, let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful. A lot of material, things to think about, we'd ask that you would keep us sane. In your son's name, amen.